to Ambassadors for Christ International. Um, he goes all over the world speaking, preaching, teaching, um, was uh, recently in the Finger Lakes area of New York and uh, did a weekend conference um, there. And, uh, and he just travels around. He lives in Atlanta, so it wasn't a, a long trip for him this time, but he goes all over the world and um, uh, meets with pastors, does pastoral training, um, does conferences like these um, uh, all over the country and some ministry around the world. So we're thankful for him. Our church, as I said uh, from that document, we have over a 30-year relationship with Al, so we're grateful to have him back with us. So Al, will you come up and I'll pray for you and, uh, and turn it over to you. Father, thank you for your servant, Al Whittinghill. Thank you for the many ways you've used him over the years. You've used him here in Dalton, Georgia, in powerful ways. And you've used him um, literally all over our country and all over the world to equip pastors, to encourage your people, to uh, motivate your people, enliven your people uh, for what you're doing um, in your kingdom all over the world. And so, Father, give us attentive ears to hear what you will say through him. And Father, give him clarity of mind to speak your words and to speak your words with, with clarity and conviction um, to us that we would be, have ears to hear and that he would be your mouthpiece. And Father, do a new work in us. That's what we long for. We want to see a new work in, in us individually and in our church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's great to see you all. I tell you, uh, of all the places I've been, this is one of my favorite places to come. Just because of the history we have and just looking back over the years, just a side note on that little uh, transformation of a local church, that was put together at the urging of some of you, maybe you in this room, I don't know who did it, but they said, put that together. So someone put that together. And let me just say that when God wants to do a new thing, he does it in the same old way. He never changes. He does that. He works. He does a new thing, and it seems so new. But I was just remarking when I, I was downstairs, a man came to check my furnace downstairs. And I happened to lean over and look under a stack of stuff. I don't know where this came from, but there was that little brochure from 30-some years ago. It had gotten put in, in there, and I read it. I was stirred because I saw the same preparation that you all are doing now for what you believe God wants to do here. You want him to do a new thing in terms of prayer and deepening and just uh, stirring. I, as I read that, it, it's the same way that was, that was moved on the elders or the leaders back then. And they began to pray. And I remember how we, uh, it, it wasn't just a weekend, it was Sunday through like Thursday, I think it was, or maybe it was Wednesday, we extended it, but the first day they met up at the uh, center up there, they rented that, uh, I think that was in March the 5th or something, but uh, all these people came and, and you could sense that God was stirring because people wanted him to teach them uh, how to walk with him in a new way in deep prayer, and I remember uh, the, that night we moved back down to the old church over at Walnut Avenue. 
where we were going to have him the rest of the week. And God just fell upon the people. And, and I remember Steve was saying how the aisles were full, people on their face. And, and, and can I tell about your son? Uh, I remember afterwards one night Steve said to me, I was back in the back and I wanted to go forward, but something just, I just couldn't do it. And I bowed my head to pray and I looked up and there was my son, like four or five, how old was he at that time? Six. But he was on his face at the altar. And Steve said, that's it for me. And he went down there and joined him. And, and so much happened. And I remember one thing particularly that the, uh, one night the, op the open doors in the back, they opened and someone came in and said, we don't know really why we're here. We were driving north on, uh, were you here then? Yeah, she remembers this. And they, and they said, we don't know why we're here, but something just said pull off. And they came on Walnut Avenue, came down to the church. And there they walked in, and, and God was upon the congregation. And they just said, we are here because the Lord sent us. I just said, Whew, that's good, Lord. And so a lot of things have been under the bridge since then. A lot of water under the ship. And the ship's upside down, now it's whatever. But uh, they used to say that was the upside down ship, uh, that, that old church building. But uh, the power of prayer uh, is what we're talking about, and individually and corporately. Corporate prayer won't mean much more than the individuals that come together and really let their hearts be burned together and agree. Uh, I want to, uh, I remember, I want to read you this little account here of uh, down at Noonday Baptist Association where uh, I work with the pastors sometime. It was, uh, it was about, this is something that really shook me. Some years before I had taken my daughter to Fiji. She was just a young girl, like uh, nine years old or 10 years old, and she went with me. We got down there, and as soon as we got there, they, they said, a cyclone is coming. It was a huge, big hurricane coming in, and I said, my wife is going to kill me. I brought my daughter down to Fiji, and we're in the midst of a hurricane, and I remember uh, everybody was boarding up the windows, and, and, and they were petrified in Suva, where we were, uh, in Nandi. I forget what town it was, but... Um, I remember that night as we went to bed and they were expecting the hurricane to come during the night. Uh, <laughs> I said, I could look out and see the, the, the reflection on the window of trees going like this. And they said, here it comes. And they said, this is going to be devastating to all of Fiji. It's going to slow moving, big hurricane. So I remember getting on my knees in my hotel room. She's over there in a the bed and she's asleep. And I'm down there looking at that shadow and I'm saying, Lord, would you, would you do something? And I remember I closed my eyes, and I could see in my mind this picture like you see on the news when you look at the weather of a huge thing twirling, uh, and it was going this way, actually, because it was like in the southern hemisphere, and, uh, and it was coming toward Fiji. And I remember I said, Lord, would you stop this hurricane? Would you stop this cyclone somehow? And I saw in my mind these hands come down between this cyclone and Fiji, and it seemed to hit the hands and bounce off and deflect up to the kind of northeast, uh, nor northwest, and bounce off, which is what it should have bounced the other way because it was turning. But uh, I remember I just kept on praying. The next morning, I was expecting roaring winds and got up, and here's all these Fijians outside taking off the, the, the wood off the doors, and they're whistling, and they're praising the Lord. A couple of these guys were praising the Lord. I said, what happened? And the paper had been printed early that morning, and I picked it up, and on the front page, there's a picture there. I've still got it today. 
on the front page of looking from above is just like what I saw. And there's this picture of the path of the hurricane, and it bounced out to the northeast on the front page of the, hurric- of the paper, and it had bounced out and had gone out into the northwest part up there. And I just was in complete awe because I realized that. Well, I told that story to the pastors. This is much, much later at, uh, down in, in Atlanta. There's about, there was about 30 of us pastors. We've been g- gathering together to pray. And uh, that morning, we found out that uh, Hurricane Michael, remember that a few years ago? It was coming into North Carolina, my home state. Uh, and, uh, and it was coming in at a Category 5 And they said it's going to be the most devastating hurricane to ever hit the East Coast because it's going to destroy the Outer Banks and everything else. And I remember I was devastated. I said, oh, no. And I I told the men this. Well, somebody read Mark chapter 11 when it says, when you stand praying, believe God and you can have what you say. Uh, If you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. If this is the will of God and you're confident of that and your heart's right, you can speak to it and God will do whatever you say. And it seemed too big. And I remember we got down and we we were praying. We were praying about a bunch of things. But someone read that scripture in uh, uh, Mark chapter 11 in this category 5. Michael, this was in October 2018. And um, I remember we got down. And several of us coming to later, we saw in our minds, just like in Fiji, we saw this hurricane on this blue background and this big thing swirling with a black eye in the middle coming toward North Carolina like this. And, and I remember we began to pray and we quoted that scripture and somebody said, Lord, we ask you to, to just stop this and diminish it. And everybody started saying, yes, diminish, diminish. That was the word, diminish. We just we speak to the eye of that hurricane and say, in Jesus' name, diminish. And, um, and we prayed, and then we, we went on. The next morning uh, after that, I said, I better look and see what, uh, what, what happened there. And so I turned on the TV, and there is that Shepherd Smith. I never was on the, you know, the newscaster. Uh, and he was there, and he, he was saying, I walked by my living room and I looked over and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've been doing hurricanes for 25 years. And I I must say, this has been an unusual situation, but this is the most unusual thing I've seen. He said, Hurricane Michael was coming into the East Coast like this, and it was coming in and it came right to the, and it kind of jogged over to the left, and it, it, and he used the word, he said, it diminished. (laughs) I remember, I went to my knees right there in front of the television, and I said, Lord, what are you saying? What am I supposed to learn from this? How can we, how can we understand this? This is, this is stunning. And I remember, so I went back and I told the guys at the next prayer meeting, and it was not long after that, uh, within a few months, that uh, Hurricane Barry came in, and it was headed toward New Orleans, and it was the wettest ever, it said, and it was just waiting outside. The levees were already messed up. And I remember it was swirling out there. And so we got down, and the Lord gave us another D. He gave us dissipate. Dissipate. Well, the next day in the paper, we saw there an article saying how that this thing had stalled out in the Gulf, and it had dissipated. (laughs) The same word. And I said, Lord. Now, this went on for two more hurricanes. I mean, Dorian came in, and the word the Lord gave us was deflect. Now, you say, you're crazy. God doesn't alliterate like that. Well, he did for us. I don't know, but the word was deflect. And then we heard them talking about it deflected and went out. Uh, and then one more, but I won't bore you with that. But uh, 
It's, it's amazing to me. And I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, could this be so? Could, do we have this kind of authority if we're under your authority? Can we possibly see this kind of things happening? I'll never forget what the Lord said to me. He said, hurricanes, no problem. They're so easy for me. I want you to see that kind of authority and power with human souls and churches. I want you in the church who believe me, according to what you believe, uh, I'll do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask or think, according to the power that's at work in you. And I had to see in my own heart that uh, my heart, when it came to prayer, of course I believe in prayer. Of course, I want to be with people who pray, and I want you to pray, and I want you to pray for me, and I want to pray for you. But do I really believe that God hears what we pray, and that He really will make an eternal difference and a visible time difference as well? And then I remembered how there's two things in the New Testament that caused Jesus to marvel. One of them is in Mark 6, 6, when it says He was in His own hometown area, and He, um, he could do no mighty work there. And he says in Mark 6, 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. I don't know how you can make Jesus marvel. He knows all things. But then the other instance, when he marveled at their unbelief, the other instance is that he was in Matthew 8. It says that he was there in Capernaum, and there was a certain centurion that came to him and said, my servant is sick, and, uh, and I, would you heal him? But I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, my house, so you simply speak the word, because I also am set under authority. And I speak to this soldier, and it's coming straight from Caesar through me. That's what he said to this centurion, uh, to, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, uh, and he saw this centurion understood the principle of delegated authority. How that it comes through a surrendered vessel, the will of God. Heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And we understand and know him enough to really let this come to pass to where we, we join our hearts together in a mutual burning and a desire. And I remember uh, Jesus looked and he said, uh, he marveled at this man's faith. So he marveled at unbelief and he marveled at the centurion's faith when he said, I've not found this kind of faith in Israel where it ought to be. You've got the scriptures. But it's a Roman centurion. So I wonder, you see, if, if I've ever realized that I can cause God to really marvel at either my unbelief, after so much teaching and so much traveling and seeing things, or marvel at, that's my, he's acting like a child that's trusting me. He's coming to me simply trusting that is all. And, and, and God does what he says in that marvelous way. Well, uh, I just wonder what could happen if Fellowship Bible Church really took this to heart. And I, this is what God is saying to the churches, especially in our own needy country right now. I don't know if you have a sense of alarm. I, told, I just told my friends down here, I told them, I said, uh, Steve, I said, you know, I'm, I can't walk around just joking all the time. I get with a group of pastors, and they want to joke or talk about sports, and my heart can't enter in that much because I'm just pressed into what's going on. There's so much. I watched yesterday on the TV, a friend of mine helped put together a crusade that they had for the churches in Cairo, Cairo, Egypt. 
And it was the first one they've ever had they can remember where all these churches worked together. They rented 300 buses in this big field right across from the largest mosque in Cairo. And they, they brought people in. And a, a, an Egyptian brother from Atlanta, Michael Yosef, uh, came and he, and, and he was preaching it. And my friend who put the organization together, he sent me a link and I watched it live. And 12,000 people showed up. And they had music that was so glorious. So much prayer had gone into it. And as they sang this beautiful music, Michael preached just humbly to them. And at the end, they didn't have a come forward invitation, but they had a stand up invitation for those who want to trust Jesus. This is serious in Egypt, serious. And maybe 4,000, 3,000 people stood up. And I just said, Lord, this is what you're doing. You see in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and you see in other places all over our country. I mean, stadiums full of young people, and you don't hear it on the news. You don't see it happening. But God is calling to his people to believe him and trust him for new things. And, and so in our country, I'm telling you, we've come to the place where nothing will make a difference anymore except for the church and real prayer uh, by her in, in, in the days ahead. We've got to learn from the Holy Spirit of God to come to him, not just making many prayers publicly, but the kind of prayers that God loves to hear. The first thing God ever said about Saul of Tarsus after he was converted uh, you know, Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he prayed all the time growing up, and he was just an epitome of a, of a Pharisee. But after he was saved, God knocked him off his high horse, struck him blind to the things of this world, and talked to him privately and alone. And he, then the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, go pray for him. He's going to receive his sight. This is a chosen vessel. And the first thing he says, the first thing in Acts 9-11, behold, he's there. And he's praying. The way the Greek, behold, it's like God is delighted. Here's a Pharisee that's prayed his whole life, but behold, he's praying. He's down to the real thing now. He's really praying. And Paul says about what happens in that time of prayer when the Lord appeared to him, like he's appearing to many people today all over the world, especially the Mideast, and saying, I want you to learn of me, not just about me. I want you to learn of me and from me, and I want you to learn who you are in me. So I believe, just like you've been over the years, on the cutting edge of many things, that the Lord would say to you as a church, you know, some of us are, are getting senior now. I mean, I said to my wife, I said, well, there's no doubt about it. When you get to be my age, you're considered an old codger now. I mean, people, uh, at least... Some of these pastors will listen to me because I've got our white hair we talked about. We've talked about white hair in here. It's strange we have to have that. But I want to encourage you to say, Lord, what are you saying to me in, in, in these days? I want, to, I want to really know. I was going to tell you about another colossal answer to prayer, but I will hold off on that and ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke, Luke chapter uh, 10. And I just want to Look there. See, prayer is as vast as God. There's no rival for it. There's no substitute. It's infinite, yet it's simple enough for his children. And there's no realm where you'll get to the end of yourself so quickly as when it comes to prayer.
You, we who know so much, who've been through so much, when we get to a real element of real prayer, we are suddenly aware of how totally needy and unaware we are of the capability and greatness of our God. But yet we're slow to believe. We're slow to believe for answers like a hurricane. How easy is that for God? And here's a wayward son. Lord, you said anything I ask and I, and I can see your will and I can see your heart. And what's the difference? How do I lay hold of God? The ordained way that God has chosen in his love and mercy for his spirit to be released in so many situations is for the church to ask and pray and believe God together. But it starts individually. I mean, you can come together and join a group prayer meeting and feel like, oh, I feel like I can't pray in public, you know, or whatever we say to ourselves that causes us to kind of be a spectator and not a participant. But when we put down those walls and barriers and learn to really uh, pray, that is when God really begins to teach our hearts. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of what it must have been like for the disciples as the Lord sent them out to preach in the, among the cities. And they began to go out and preach, repent. And they came back in, and then he sent out another 70 in Luke chapter 10. Uh, another 70 he sent out two, before, two by two before his face. So there was a lot more than 12. There was, here's 70 going out, preaching repentance. And they go out and they preach and they start seeing the other invisible realm opened up. Demons are subject to us in his name. And, and they see healings. And they come back to the Lord and they're blown away that, wow, you know, kind of like, praise the Lord. No, they didn't say that, I'm sure. But, but they were, they were kind of, you know, became really fired up. And he says, look, don't rejoice that demons and all that are subject to you. That's just easy, normal stuff. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you're mine. See, that's the main thing. And oh, by the way, devil, get out of here. You know, it's, 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 our heart is toward him. And so you see them, uh, he's saying, blessed are the eyes that see what you see and the ears that hear what you hear. And uh, so as they get through all this together, maybe 70, who knows how many there were. They come to Bethany and in chapter 10, verse 38. Now it came to pass as they, however many they were, as they went, that he entered into a certain village. It's Bethany. And there was a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. It's Martha and Mary. They lived there, and their brother was Lazarus. And so she had a sister named Mary, which, here's her description. She also sat at Jesus' feet, and she heard his word. What a thing to have said about you. If you're going to be remembered in Scripture that Steve Fain sat at Jesus' feet and he heard his word when Jesus opened it. Man, uh, that's, that's stunning. And so you can see, here's these men coming in to eat. Now, when we have people over to eat at our house that are missionaries or something, my wife doesn't put out paper plates. She tries to make them feel special, and, you know, and bees the same way. She would make you just, she'd set a nice spread. And so, and when they start coming in, you get a little nervous. I'm telling you, uh, I, I've seen it. I've seen the kitchen when you have, or you have 21 grandkids converging on your house, and you're going to feed them a meal, and you, you can say something, don't mess with me right now. You know, she's focused. 
And so here's Martha and Mary. They're in whatever a kitchen was in that day. And they're getting everything ready for Jesus to come into their house and all the disciples. Now Mar- Martha seems like she has a gift for this, you know. Mary's helping, it seems. I don't know. But they went. And so, but verse 40, Martha was weighed down or distracted with much serving. And came to the Lord Jesus. I can see this. She's looking out from the preparatory for food area. And she sees, some, she sees this next verse. It says, she sees Mary out here sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary has stopped the work of preparation and left it all the load on Martha. And, you know, nothing wrong with getting ready for a guest to come in your house. It's great to have a gift of service. What could be more spiritual than feeding a meal to Jesus and his disciples in your house? It's a good thing. But Mary, Martha comes out, and she came to him, verse 40, and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? That's kind of a rebuke. Don't you care? (laughs) Don't you care? Can't you see what's going on here? She's left the load on me, Lord. Tell her, therefore, that she help me. And it's a word for picking up the heavy end of a log. And so, Uh, She looks out and Mary's sitting out there at Jesus' feet and she gets miffed. I mean, she does. And she comes out and says, tell her to get busy. And this is kind of what we do in our churches. We measure our, sometimes we measure our effectiveness by how busy we think we are. But you see, busy can lead you to barrenness when you don't have anybody sitting at his feet. But I've learned the opposite's true as well. It's not just busy that leads you to barrenness. Barrenness can produce busyness. When you're feeling empty on the inside and you know something is missing, but you say, well, maybe it's this that'll help, and you, 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 you feed orphans. And there's nothing wrong with feeding orphans, but it doesn't meet that need on the inside. You see, uh, busyness can be produced by barrenness so you, uh, because on the inside you need something, and you're doing this to kind of add to your idea of where you are spiritually. So, so here's what happens. Jesus answered and says to Martha, 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 so tender, he must have said it. You are, uh, you are weighed down. You're, you're careful. You're anxious and troubled about many things. We could put that right over our closet, most of us. You're weighed down and troubled about many things. It's a true saying. And, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen the good part, which shall never be taken away from her. Mary has made a choice. It's not that she's just bent this way, but she's made a choice to sit at Jesus' feet and receive and listen and learn. And this is the right choice. It's priorities in order for her. She's listening to me. She's at my feet. And this will never be taken away from her. Pots and pans may come and go. But Jesus, what he says to you, will stay. And it'll, next time you're doing pots and pans when he's not there, it'll give you heart and put the fire in it as well and give it meaning as well. So uh, the next verse is chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter division, but you don't see it. But the first word is and, A-N-D. It means it's based right on what you just read. Uh, after the disciples had seen this stunning, uh, Mary's made the right choice. You see, it's a choice. Look, everybody would love to go to the Olympics, right? 
They, but they don't, and they like to stand on the block and get the gold medal or silver or brass, whatever, bronze. And, uh, but they won't go. You know why? Because they, it takes more than just thinking you'd like to or just wanting to and trying to go to the Olympics. And it's the same way with being a prayer warrior. Everybody would like to be a prayer warrior. We want to belong to a church that believes in prayer and loves prayer. And we wish that others would pray for us. And we do pray for them, you know, as we, but it's not the priority necessarily in our life. And it's more of a fit in, you see. I just don't have time. It's not a time problem. It's a priority problem that we have. Our problem is not unanswered prayer. Our problem is unoffered prayer. And we don't understand that prayer is more than a way to get our needs met. It's a way to see the glory of God in my life, in my family, and in my church, and to bring God's will, His determined purposes, into manifestation right in around me. Thy will be done in my family as it's being done in your throne room, Lord. Thy will be done in Fellowship Bible Church as it's being done uh, in heaven. Thy will be done and come through Fellowship Bible Church and expressed to the uttermost parts of the world, just like we see your will uh, in, in heaven. It came to pass, verse 1, as he was praying in a certain place. When he ceased praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. And it's an us word. It's not just me. It's teach us to pray. And you'll see if you were to read on and see in what we call the Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer, uh, the word us or you is plural. God wants us to pray together. He wants our hearts to be brought together. Teach us to pray. You know the word saint is not even in the singular in the New Testament. It's always in the plural. He sees the saints. He says to the church, at, he says to each of the seven churches in Revelation, he's like the high priest and he's in trimming the wicks of the churches. He's taken off the ashes and he's putting in the oil and you see him there and he's, he's, he's examining their light. And he says to every single one, all seven, I know your works. I know exactly what's going on in your fellowship. And uh, I want to commend you for these things. And he's got a lot he could commend here. He's got a lot he could commend in a lot. Only two of them he doesn't say much good about uh, of those five. But he says, I know your works, how you've, you, you, you've labored and you've endured and you've done some things. But see, they've left off faith, hope, and love. He says, you've left your first love, not lost it. You left it. If you want to find it back, go back to where it was. Go right back to where you left it. There was a point that you came to a choice and you made other things more important than loving me. I had a little old lady come and she says, oh, pray for me that I'll just love prayer, that I'll, that I have, that I'll want to pray. And I said, well, that's a wonderful thing to pray. But what I'm going to pray is that you just love Jesus and, and, and you want to have time with him. Because that's the heartbeat of what we're talking about here. I want to learn this. And so you see the Lord Jesus to, to seven out of those seven churches. He says to, to five of seven of them, excuse me. He says, repent. And that's a word that the church needs to hear in our day. 
Tim and I were talking about that. You see, uh, many of us think we can just pray to get our problems solved and our needs met, but we've got these contradictions in our hearts, and we know about them, but we've heard them for so long we've kind of treated them as normal struggles and just ignore. But if you really want to go forward in prayer, deal with the things that you thought weren't as important. Deal with the things that God keeps mentioning to you about gossip or attitude or uh, lust or, or whatever it is, unbelief, and all the things that we kind of dust under and say, it's just normal. I'm not a pedophile. I'm not LGB. I'm not a robber. I'm not stealing money. Uh, and we say we kind of justify ourselves, and we don't see our real need. To five of seven, he says, repent and remember from where it is that you've come down. Remember what it was like when you first were so excited and thrilled and you had a honeymoon love for Jesus and you walked with him in the beauty of holiness and you just couldn't wait to get in your Bibles and see what happened. You left that. Remember that and get back to where it was you've fallen from and repeat the first words. Repent, repent. And so... He's saying, I want you to understand what it means if you want to be taught by God to pray. So let me just say a few things about prayer and see if this is true. See if this is true. Would you say that prayer is probably, well, I believe the scriptures say it's the single most important ingredient in any Christian's life. The time you spend alone with God. Because what that does is it gives heart to everything else that you do, intelligently and morally, you see. It's, it's the one thing needful, according to what Jesus said. One thing is needful, and Mary has made the choice. And so stirred by seeing that, they came to Jesus, and they said, teach us to pray. That's the only thing the Holy Spirit records in the New Testament that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. They could have said, teach us to preach, teach us to do good works. and They needed that. Of course they needed to learn. But I think it's important that the Holy Spirit says, this is the one thing I'm letting you see, they ask. Because, see, they saw it in Him. They saw Him praying in a certain place. means that they were used to Him maybe being there a certain place. And they'd, they'd get up in the morning and Jesus was gone. He was out alone with His Father. And he was, or in the afternoon, He would leave the crowd and go out into a mountain alone. Or... Many nights, it says, plural in Luke. He was all night in prayer with his father. Well, they saw this one called Father that Jesus kept spending time with. And let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about that? What did Jesus pray about? He didn't have any sins to confess. He didn't have the same kind of struggles that we do with because that are by selfishness or pride or unbelief. He, he was alone with his father. And the Father would communicate to him as the perfect man. If he needed to pray and spend time like that, that was the most conspicuous thing about him, what's my need? And, I mean, he, he could say, I do nothing but what I see my Father doing in heaven. I don't say anything but what my Father has first said it. You see, he is keeping that union and that love and that oneness as the perfect man. As I've given you an example that you should follow in my steps. And so he spent time with the Father, hearing from heaven, so that he could, as he walked and went about doing all the things he did in obedience to the Father, everything he did came straight from the throne above. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's the great secret of prayer. 
When we spend time alone with the Father, we're hearing. See, and, and this may be a, a, a troublesome thing in our mind because we realize we're saying, well, prayer is just the way we get our needs met. It's the way that I get encouraged. It's the way the Bible is open. Well, it's true. Uh, it's the surest way for any person or any family or any church to become truly spiritual, truly spiritual. There's a lot of pressure on us in our country to become accepted by the world around us. We want to have them come in and feel at home. And, and we want the people to, and some of the mega churches are really making the world come in and feel at home. But you see, we ought to welcome people in, that's true, and they ought to feel loved and they ought to feel accepted and blessed when they're here. But they should have a part of them that says, if they're not a Christian, they should feel the uncomfortableness that an earthworm would feel if you dropped it in the frying pan. It would feel uncomfortable, a little nervous. That's what happens when you get natural around the supernatural presence of God. And let me tell you, it's not apologetics, and it's not uh, good works. It's not all the other things, because there's plenty of groups doing all that. That won't convince this generation of young people to trust God, more than likely. They've learned to shut things out. Like you see earthquakes that kill a thousand people, and you read it on the internet, then the next day you're out playing racquetball. We don't communicate burdens like that. But when you go around a group of people who obviously are hearing from heaven and they're giving answers to prayer that only God could do, it shakes people to the core. And what people in Dalton need to see is the presence of God on the people of God and feel His love and power through the people of God. And that is what should be happening. And that only comes as we learn to pray. It's the best way, prayer, to protect your family from the thousands of influences that are after your grandchildren and your children. To be like Job, you know, God says three times he was the best man on earth in Job chapter 1. It's the oldest book written down. It didn't happen before Genesis. But he says he's, there's no one like Job. And the one characteristic God cites about Job, what was it? Do you remember? He was up every morning praying for his family. Nobody's like this man. It's so interesting to me because, you see, the devil comes in a few chapters later and he says to the father, let me at Job. I can't get to him. You've set a hedge around him and his family. There's a hedge that God puts around prayer. You build up the wall. When you pray, you build a wall, you build a, a protective zone around, and, and prayer really does. It's like God says you can't come inside here. If trouble comes, you can bet this, that God has a reason for it, and there's a better lesson if you'll listen, because God's in charge. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So it's the best way to protect our homes and our loved ones and our families from all the hostile influences, and they're aggressively after you. This has been hidden from the church, but the aggressiveness of the church of Satan, some of you know about this in the elementary schools and the Satan clubs and all, but I'm saying there's, a, there's an aggressive move. And most of us, I use this figure to my granddaughter, she says, ooh, gross, Dad. I said, most of us in church sit around pulling spiritual lint out of our navels. You know, and she said, gross. You know, but I was just saying, this is the importance of what we give our attention to. When these grandkids are under trouble, you say, I'm, I'm through listening to him. <laughs> you want to bless your family, you want to leave them a legacy, pray for them. 
Let them know you're praying for them and ask them how to pray for them. And it's, it's the key to church growth, prayer. It's, the, it's, it's what makes discipleship work. It's what makes missions burning and happening and not just a tactical thing we do. It's, it's a heart mis- ministry. Uh, prayer is the only way to make that happen. And it's real, you see. Uh, it's, it's how to make preaching penetrate. It's discipleship and missions. And you see, prayer is the arm of his strength. It's the weapon that's mighty through God. You see, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Well, what wields the sword? Is it just the arm of God? What's His arm? His arm, I believe, is the prayer of the church. It's the difference in what makes a lost man first begin to be interested. If you were to first really look and look, what was it? Somebody prayed for you, and they broke down that wall, that barrier, that, that blindness, and, and God let the gospel penetrate. But it's the answer, prayer. And without it, this is why our statistics in most denominations are so abysmally low when it comes to baptisms. Now, we can have a, a baptism service and call for people to come and say, we'll give you a t-shirt if you'll get baptized. And I'm, not, I'm not putting that down, but I'm just saying, you know, I had a pastor say, we had 1,200 people baptized in one Sunday. I said, what'd you pay them? <laughs> Anyway, he, he didn't like that. But it, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with having that. But I'm saying, what happened to when people say, what does forbid me to be baptized? Like the Ethiopian eunuch that says, here's water. Can I be baptized? And I'm not trying to put anything down. But it's the key to church growth. It's the most powerful instrument for good on the planet, prayer. It's the unfailing way for you to be strengthened in trial or trouble, or temptation, watch and pray that you fall not into temptation, Jesus said. People fall in public only after they've failed in private, I believe. You can look at the, a lot of things and you see there's a failure in, the, in, in, in private, in time with God, in time with other saints, praying together. But prayer gives strength and blessing. It's to be strengthened in your heart. It's a dissolver of doubts. When you doubt, go to the Word of God and get at Jesus' feet and listen and pray and you'll find uh, God's favorite classroom and how, where He tells His secrets is in the prayer room. Uh, together, you'll learn from one another as you pray. You pray Scripture and you learn how to voice Scripture to the, to the Lord. It's the place of vision. It's where God gives vision in prayer. It's where, it's where He gave vision to Paul to go into, go into Europe Cross over, go to Philippi. That's the first time the gospel went into Europe. And it was in prayer that God had a, gave Paul a vision of the, of the Philippian jailer, remember? And he went across. He came to prayer closet. The first missionaries were sent out of a prayer closet in Acts 13. You see over and over that God does this. It's where passion comes. When you're reading the Word and God shows you something, your heart ignites in a new way. And there's a passion and then you can say, what would you have me do, Lord, about this heart burden? And he'll, he'll show you. It's the place where discernment and wisdom comes. You pray about this, and God gives you wisdom and discernment when you're confused about what looks so good, but you find that it's just window dressing of the world sometimes, and you learn. So before God ever moves in revival, prayer, real authentic prayer, is always the prerequisite. And revival will last as long as prayer is planted in the church to sustain that. 
All the great moves of God in America have been preceded by much prayer. That's why I'm encouraged today because the Spirit of God is saying to the churches in America and around the world, pray, seek my face. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 is some of the favorite verses. You know, Jesus says, my Father's house will be called a house of prayer. Everybody's trying to redefine the church. You don't need to. God said it's a house of prayer. It's the most conspicuous thing about the church. It's a house of prayer. That the, and, and that's how he wants his church to be. I mean, it's not just the church saying we're a house of prayer. It's the world looking and saying, that's a house of prayer. That's what they do. You look at this church, uh, this church, this building next door to you. And probably the most conspicuous thing about them may be their prayer. I don't know. But it's to the wrong God. But wouldn't it be something? I mean, how is this church known? I mean, you have so many good things about you. But I wonder if they would say in the community, they really know how to pray. I'm going over there. My mother's sick. And you, they come in and you pray and, and, and they can sense your heart. And suddenly the gospel has love and power wrapped around it from your heart to theirs. It's a house of prayer. It's the one thing that the devil fears more than anything else. You see him in the early church of Acts trying to shut down the prayer meeting. He gave a, a fear of destruction of the body. He, gave div, he tried to make division among the, uh, the, the different people that were there. He tried to uh, get them all distracted with false doctrine and activities. But they finally said, uh, uh, we are, we're going to give ourselves to the prayer. The word is the prayer. It's the kind of prayer in the first chapter. Uh, and we're going to give ourselves to the prayer and the deaconing of the Word of God. It's the diaconus, not the preaching, but the deacon. We're going to go sharing the Word out of the prayer closet that we've learned in every place. So the devil hates it more than anything else. You know why? Because he suffered so much from it. And he knows that when the church really begins to lay hold of this and learn to pray, then his goose is cooked. I mean, he's so busy around the world. If you knew what was going on behind the scenes in some of these countries around the world, and I get calls, you'd be horrified because the church has relegated the place of prayer. Uh, not, in, not in the uncivilized countries. I mean, the church is exploding there. And, it, and there's so many people getting saved in, in places that seem so unlikely. But it's in America that the America, North America, is the only place on the planet where Christianity is shrinking. Now, I, I can't say that reliably knowing with the young people that are hearing today and all this happening. But there's like 10,000 churches in our country a year that are shutting their doors. They're not, in the Baptist, there's 900 churches closing their doors every year. And you figure what that really means statewide. And, and they're planting 1,200 churches, the house churches and that. But there's a tremendous erosion of things that took years to build in churches. Like I was wondering about this Doug Gap Baptist Church driving in this morning. I said, you know, I've never really noticed them before. I, I wonder what where they are and what they're doing. But you see, it's churches like that and other churches that get to, after COVID, to they can't keep on, and they just shut down or give their facilities to somebody else. You can go in the cities and see that around universities that fraternity houses have bought old churches, and now they're bars. Like Russia, you go to Russia, and you see all these old churches. They become bars. Or worse yet, nightclubs, where there's 
all kind of stuff going on. And you see this happening in our country. Up in where my son is pastor in Brattleboro, Vermont, there's a, there's a pharmacy that bought an old church. This business is buying it because churches have said we can't go on. You know why? Because they've left off the thing that's the breath that makes it work. Now, y'all aren't about to leave it off, but I just want to challenge you again to discover and learn to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Not only teach me to pray, but teach us to pray each one. So nothing that he wants to do more than to make prayer triumphant in your life and in the church. He wants that to be triumphant. Uh, it's the most awesome privilege in life. You figure if God said to you, Steve, from now on, I'm only going to hear prayer one day a year. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm, I'm just being facetious here. But we have such a privilege to come in anytime, anywhere, and come to the throne of grace, into the throne room where, I mean, if you go outside and you start just thinking about it, how does he keep all those birds fed? How does he, he knows every little worm in the, in, in the grass beneath your feet that's eking out a little living, eating whatever they eat. And, and all the sand fleas and all along the beach, you walk and you're just amazed how many. But you think of the whole world and it's all kept together. And then you get bigger, the orbits of the planets and the sun and the meteorites and all of them kept in place, every atom, every cell in perfect submission to his will. And this is the God that says, come into my throne room. But you need, need to discover my will. I give you the privilege of getting in the Word of God so you can come into unity with my heart together. And when you come into unity with my heart together, then you can ask what you will. Ask. You have not because you ask not. How many times in secret prayer together have you all gotten together and asked the Lord to shut down the enemies of the gospel in Dalton. I just wonder how, how many times that's happened. I want to, I if I can find my piece of paper here, I want to read this to you, and then I'll be, I'm going to finish this, and we'll have a little break here. My, but let me say, the one thing needful in my life, the thing I realize as I get older, the thing I hear from men of God that are facing, stepping off into the next part of their existence in the throne room of God. I hear great old men of God that I know, and they're saying, I should have prayed more. And people, when they get to the, and they start seeing the reality of things, they said, wish I'd prayed more. That's what Billy Graham said at the end. I, I, I should have spent more time in prayer, because one day we're going to be completely blown away when we see the way it works, like, like that that thing with the hurricane, God could say, it was like that in all those things. I just let you see that one. I was trying to encourage you to make your choice to give your life to what really counts. Well, I want to just give you this, and then I'm going to have a break. Uh, I haven't covered a thing I was going to cover. I've just been talking to you out of my heart for you because I love this church. And I believe that you could see this. Not only your family's changed, but Dalton changed, and ultimately the whole world changed just through what God does through people that get on their face together and really pray together. It starts, though, with you and me, each one making the choice that uh, Mary made 
Lord, I choose to believe you. And I'm not going to restrict your work. See, we're afraid of what it means. If God started answering like that, if you became known as the people that, that, that could move mountains in prayer, I mean, they'd start looking at you like, they're kind of weird. Well, we've got to be willing for that. Let me just tell you, I checked on this, and I want to just tell you, I, I told uh, Tim I was going to read this, and this is not the least bit to pat us on the back. This is to, to say to you, this can happen here. And, and I was thinking of it because of what's sitting right in your side yard. Uh, this, I go to New York some, and I was a couple years ago, I was in, uh, this happened like in 2019, started in 2015, but I would go up, up in the north part of New York, and we would have meetings in the churches and encourage them. It's, it's like another planet up there. It's different than New York City or the rest of the United States. It's very laid back, very rural. But uh, there's all these different pastors, and these, this one prayer group was trying to bring the pastors together. And they would bring them together around all kinds of things that have tent meeting, that have all this. There's all kinds of this charismatic, non-charismatic, Baptist, Presbyterian, all these different people. But they were doing a wonderful job bringing these people together from time to time. And there was this one fellow that, that he, he was unusual. He was like a grown-up hippie. But this guy would carry a, a, a pull a wagon with tracks in it and everything, and he was kind of like you, brother, the Jesus film. But he was uh, he was on target. But you, you probably wouldn't just hang out with him. Uh, you'd hang out with our brother here. But not, I'm getting in trouble. Y'all don't know what I'm saying. Uh, there's always people say, "Well, that's their ministry." This guy, this was up in a place called Palmyra, New York. Anybody know where that is? This is the home of Joseph Smith. This is where the guy that had the vision of the mystery underwear and the golden plates and all that from Maroney Baloney, I mean Maroney, uh, that told him all these things. It's, it's called Mount Camorra. It's in Palmyra, New York. And, and so it became well known. And back in the, uh, it, it's the birthplace where Joseph was born, Joseph Smith. And this is one of the most venerated spots of the Mormons on the planet. They've restored kind of the farm and they have this museum where, you know, they have models of the mystery plates and all the rest in there. And uh, they have what they call the Hill Camorra pageant. And this started way back from 1850 as the legend grew more and more. Uh, Camorra was named for Moroni. That, this is where the, this angel, they say, appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him this vision. So, in 1937, the largest outdoor theatrical pageant in the United States started. It has like, uh, let me just read you about it. It has a 10-level stage on, the, on, the, on this hill that goes up. If you went out there, you could see it. We did this. And there's 10 different stages, and they have this presentation, and they have uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir now has been coming in all these years, and they have like 50 to 60,000 people every year come to Mount Camorra from all over, and they come and watch this the theatrical drama outside. 750 people member cast, 150 technical crew, and uh, uh, big lights. And it's in July, annually, since 1937. It's uh, over a two-week period. 
And it's what you call the, it was the flagship event among the Mormons. So my friend, this little fellow I was telling you about, he would go out there and he'd hold up signs and he'd witness and they'd mock him. And uh, he always every year would go out there and say, this place, I hate this place. But he would share the gospel. And uh, so they've also got a huge museum. They've spent millions on that people come and they go through and look at it. Uh, so there was about 10 pastors that we were talking and I said, why don't, why don't we go over there all together? And I know we get, you give out tracts and you preach, but why don't you go over there and lay down a prayer gauntlet? Why don't we get together and go over there? So we went over there and uh, we went in the museum like we were like tourists, you know. We went in there together and we walked in separately and we're looking at all these places and right in the middle of the main big part where the, you know, the models of the mystery spectacles or whatever else are here, we gather and we hold hands in a big circle and we, we start praying. Now, needless to say, there was no small stir among those hosts and hostesses. They would see us over there praying. But we began to pray, and you said, this is rude what you're doing. You shouldn't do that. Well, we, we felt like we'd had enough. I said, you guys tired of trying to do all this? Let's just lay down a prayer gauntlet. And we held hands, and here's what was said. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shut this place down. We shut this place down in Jesus' name. Shut it down. This is false doctrine. And we prayed, and uh, we, we were very, very serious about it. And I think people began to watch us. And, uh, and the people that were running the place kind of looked at us like this. And soon you could see they want us to leave for sure. So we did. We got out and we left. And we walked out. And, uh, and I kind of said, well, thank you, Lord, for the privilege of doing that. And they were kind of glad we left. But we got word about three months later that the pageant that had been going on for over 80 years was canceled. And not only was it canceled, uh, they tried to, something went wrong or something, but they, they were going to, 2019, they were, for the next year, they were going to, it would be the last year. And they were trying to have a going away pageant, I guess. But COVID began to come up there and it wiped it out completely. And you know, to this day, it's closed down and, uh, they have not had a pageant. And you think of the revenue lo locally and everything else. But see, was it that time when the men and women got together in that circle and said, in the name of Jesus, we believe this is contrary to your will, and we shut this down in Jesus' name. And all kinds of people, people could say, well, why did it shut down? They could say, we don't know. They didn't say. I said, we know. We know. You say, that's a big claim. Listen, he said, It'd be shocking if you said to a mountain be cast into the sea and it started moving. You'd be surprised by that one too. But what it does is it stirs the heart and gets you to where, yeah, I believe God shut them down. And then now they went, and let me just say, then they went to a thing called Navuo in Illinois and they shut that one down. There's a Mesa pageant in Arizona. They shut that one down and they shut down one in England. 81 years and they shut them down. What a blessing. This was awesome to me. I called up there. I was just up there in Rochester, which is south of there a little bit. And these hills are overgrown with weeds now. I think the museum is still trying to stay open, but I mean, I don't think it's doing well. And uh, maybe time for another trip. 
This is the same place that the Fox sisters, the ones who heard the knocking, started Spiritism. There's a house up there. They sat in and they had all this knocking. We went around that one trip and stood in a big circle around that and shut it down. People come from all over the world, Spiritists, and go there. You need to do that in Dalton. You need to believe God for shutting down the enemy and starting up the works of God that are propelled out by believing prayer. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are mighty through God's power to the pulling down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God. It says that every, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus and amen to the glory of God. And then it adds these two words, by us. What does that mean? Every promise of God is waiting for the church. See, we don't have a promised land to take, but we do have a promised life. We have a promised victory. We have a promised uh, exaltation of the Lord Jesus that we can lay hold of together as the Word takes its root in us and we lay hold of it together. How much can we believe God that He would open the eyes of our heart that we might know the assurance, the hope of His calling, high priest. We're a royal priesthood with Him. And he wants us to pray with him and join with him. Before the great commission can ever be powerful, the great communion with him has to be effectual. This means I have to know him. And when I do and I get with Tim and we see something in the Word of God, we say, this, is, this has got to be so. This is God's will. And we lay hold. And God lets us. Uh, let me just read this. I'm going to read one more before we take a break. Just a second. In, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus, verse 1, spoke a parable to them to this result, this goal, this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Two alternatives. Always continuing in prayer, as Paul said, and watching in the same with thanksgiving, assurance of God. Uh, Luke 18, 1, Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. What is fainting? Fainting is when if I, if I fainted up here, I'd be on the floor, and you could come up and you could say, you're a dirtbag. And I wouldn't even notice because I'm out of touch with reality around me. You know, I, I can't relate to, my, to, to the people around me. That's physical fainting. What's spiritual fainting? It's when the Word doesn't sparkle. It's when the things of God aren't special, and you just kind of are out of touch. You sit in church, but I didn't get much out of it. And, and you're not listening, you're not hearing, because inside you're tired and you're like Mary, you're troubled and weighed down about many things, and you're feeling like you're going to faint. Jesus spoke a parable to them that taught this man ought always to pray, continue in it, go on in it, learn, and not faint. And he says this parable. There was in a city a judge who feared not God, or he regarded not man. In other words, he didn't really have a fear of God. He could do anything. It didn't bother him. His conscience was so seared, apparently, he didn't, he didn't care. And he regarded not man. Uh, he didn't care about hardship and maybe justice. And so he just was a judge. And, uh, and there was in this city a, 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 a widow, and she came to this judge saying, Avenge me of my adversary. This, apparently something had happened, maybe who knows, take her land or something, but she was all alone. What's more helpless than a little old widow? 
with a heartless judge. And she comes and she, but it says she keeps coming to him. I mean, he'll be coming out of the courthouse. This is a modern figure. And she's out there saying, do the right thing. And, you know, and, and so everywhere he looks, here's this little widow saying, do what you know you should do. And she keeps coming to him, avenge me of my adversary. But he would not for a while, it says. He wouldn't do anything about it. But afterwards, he said within himself, he wouldn't say it out here, but he said inside. Uh, he said, even though I fear not God, and I don't care that much about people, I don't regard man, yet because this widow is troubling me, I'm going to avenge her, lest by her continual coming, there's that word, continual coming, she wearies me. And the word there kind of means like hit you beneath the eye or give you a black. This, you can see her out there with her umbrella saying, do the right thing, do the right thing. And this begins to intimidate this, this hard judge. And so he gave in this, this, this judge. And then verse 6, the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge said. In other words, he gave in. He didn't fear God. He didn't care about people, but he gave in to continual coming. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night to him, even though he bears long with them? Even though he makes this little widow wait, even though he makes me wait when I have a heart-rending situation, he is allowing me to bring my heart into a situation like his heart, to learn and to stand with him. He says, he says shall not the judge of all the earth uh, do right? Uh, I tell you that God will avenge them speedily. He's going to hear. Keep coming. And then he adds these words. These are the words that get me. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith, and it means that kind of faith, on the earth. When Jesus comes, will he find a group of people that are like this little widow, that by their continual coming and crying unto him day and night are so integrated into his purposes and with him in heart that they co-labor, they're in co-mission, they're in communion together, unified in heart with him and with each other. He says nothing can stop a church like that. Well, when I got up here, I wasn't sure what I was going to say. I really wasn't. I had so many things, and I still do, because prayer is as vast as God. What I said, Lord, please motivate us to see how big prayer is for us and what we're missing by not really entering in. And, and what does it take to enter into like a night of prayer that you folks have regularly? It takes a discipline. Like if you want to be a prayer warrior, you've got to let the Lord discipline you and teach you to pray, teach you. And the first step is to be available and to say, I don't have what I need on a real spiritual level. Put it in me, Lord, what you want out of me. And I'm going to even, I mean, when he says to his own in Acts chapter 1, they knew about the Great Commission. Their hearts were ready and toward him. They knew what he wanted them to do. And it was the Great Commission to all the world in, in, in my name, repentance and faith, teaching them to do all that I've said and to become dis make disciples. They were, they were so desirous of that. But then in Acts chapter 1, he says, now I'm about to ascend to the Father, and the promise of the Father will come. Don't you leave Jerusalem. And he straightly commanded them, paragaleo. It's a military term. It says, I command you, wait for the promise of the Father. 
the enabling of the Spirit of God. It's by the Spirit of God that this has got to happen. Dalton can only be reached by the Spirit of God in and through his people. Not the best finance, best program ever thought by man. We've had plenty of that in America over the last 60 years. And, and yet it's shrinking, the, the work of God. He says, I, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, and so they went to the supper room. No, the upper room. And, and they, they began to wait for 10 days. These people had families. They had children, surely. They had to go and take care of things. But, but, but they went and they, they made this their priority. And why did they come and pray for 10 days with, with, with getting in on God's heart, weeping and mourning like Joel says, because this is that? Why did they? Did they love prayer? No. They loved Jesus. And Jesus had said, My house will be called a house of prayer. This is the way that I will send my will from heaven to earth and plant the heavens. And I will build my church. When he built his church, the cornerstone and the foundation was a praying congregation. He said, I will build my church. Now, one last thought. When Moses was about to build the tabernacle, God showed him the real tabernacle in heaven. And he says to him seven times, five times to him, but seven times in the scripture, he says, I told Moses to make it according to the pattern, make it exactly like what he'd seen in heaven, the mountain of where, the, where the temple of God is. So Moses made it everything the Lord said. It was according to the pattern. That was the tabernacle. But later in 2 Chronicles 28 and 29, God gave to David the, the picture of the temple. And he, he, the pattern of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Solomon, make it exactly like the pattern that the Holy Spirit gave to David. Make it exactly the altar and the laver, because it's saying something. It's a, it's a living parable. Make it exactly. Don't deviate. None of man's thoughts. And so they made it according to pattern. So does it make sense that the one who told Moses and the one who told David, make it like the one I showed you and make it like the real one, that you make the church that I will build, you, you're take heed how you build, Paul says. Take heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. Take heed who you hear. That's three things it says. And then take heed how you build. Build upon the foundation. You and I build. And how are we going to build it? See, we've got to make it according to pattern. And what's the pattern? Well, the architect went to heaven and left the blueprint in the book of Acts. And they, she's even called the mother church DNA from heaven. That's what it's like for us who offspring from her. And she's also the model church for us. So if you want to know how to build his church as he builds it, as we cooperate with him as he shows us, do it like the book says. That's the pattern. And his pattern is, my father's house will be called, not just that it hopefully will be, but it will be a house of prayer. So I want to urge you during the break just to think about that. And I want to talk, uh, I mean, and pray for me that I'll know exactly what I'm supposed to bring this next session because I'm sitting here saying there's too much to cover. How, do, how can I say things to these people that, that I feel like the Lord's whispered to me, said to me strongly, and have them know that I love them? <laughs> I'm not rebuking you. I'm just saying we're in the same boat. But, 
What do you want your next 10 years, 20 years of your life to be like? You know, what do you want it to be when you lay your head down and say, I'm coming home, Lord. I want to get there and I want to have my heart amazed at what prayers have done that are so much greater than I've ever measured. See, it all depends on what you want. How can you make a choice for what you don't really want? Well, take up that cross and come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then you get in the place where you're not only available, but you confess your total need and unableness on your own, and you let Him fill you bit by bit. I don't want to go run today in the rain. Well, but you want to go to the Olympics. You want to, you're training for something larger, bigger, better. And so you eventually he brings your heart into it, even though he makes you wait a while because he's, he's transferring you to walk from sight to faith. And he wants you to see that this shall be so because in Jesus' name, it's so. I'll never forget. I keep saying I'm finishing. I was on the streets one night, and this guy, I was at, we were out witnessing, and this guy walks up to me, and he's kind of like this, you know, and he's definitely on something, or I don't know, but, but he, says, uh, he says, well, you don't know me, but there's coming a day when it won't be dark, and it won't be not, uh, light, and it won't be day, and it won't be night, and he was quoting from the Minor Prophets, and he probably didn't know it, but he was just kind of like, like this, you know, and he says, and I'm a warlock. I'm a, I'm a witch, you know, I'm a warlock, and I have power from the devil. And I said, oh, you do. And, and, I, and I, I said, well, let me just tell you something. You used to be a witch. You used to be a warlock. In the name of Jesus, I cancel your power completely. You say, how rude. The guy fell on the ground. And all these guys that were with him began to look like this. And I said, there's power in the name of Jesus. And you guys need to find out about it and quit listening to the ravings of a man who's contrary to everything God says. And I left. But I mean, you see, Paul said to a woman that was following him, these are the servants of the Most High God, and they show us the way of God in truth. And it says that he turned around, he says, come out of her, and he named the spirit of Python. It was a snake god that they worshipped in that place where she was. And it says he went on. And it says that, and that spirit came out of her the same hour. He didn't sit around and get louder and say, tell me your name. I mean, he, he didn't have a deliverance ministry. He just said, in the name of Jesus, get out of her. And he walked on. You know how he could do that? Because he had a private prayer life with God. This is what happens when you grow together in prayer. Well, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, teach us to walk in your delegated authority and teach us how to really trust you no matter what. In these days ahead, teach us about what you've promised to the church and what you promised to every person who says, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. I don't know how to pray as I ought, but I want to learn, and I'm available, and I surrender to it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, let's... Sorry, brother. Are you coming up here? Yep. We'll, we'll take about a seven or eight-minute break. Uh, I guess maybe six minutes. We'll, we'll be back about, about 10.30. So we'll, it'll just be kind of a short break, um, and we'll come back in here about 10.30 or so and keep going for another session, and then we'll have lunch. Thank y'all. you're in, your lo in the lobby, please rejoin us, and uh, we'll get started here on session two. 
And I have another quick commercial reminder for you. Um, there's another document out on the table that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is um, our monthly prayer calendar. We gave you one of these for October um, in preparation for this event, and then also November to keep it going, um, just as a catalyst for private prayer, for family prayer. Um, it's really simple, and I'm going to show you how simple it is um, right now. Uh, the, if you look at uh, November 4th, which is today on this prayer calendar, it says the prayer request for today, and this is from our elders, pray that we would embrace and enter into a deeper connection with God through prayer. And it's just a simple, something to pray about, a scripture to read every single day. And so yesterday's request that we would have humble hearts to hear and receive God's message from Al Whitting Hill um, on Saturday. So that was yesterday's in preparation for today. But today is that we would embrace and enter into a deeper connection with God through prayer. So I'm going to pray that prayer right now. And then um, Al's going to come and join us for, uh, for session two. Father, I praise you for this day, this event, and this prayer that we have the privilege. It truly is, Father, a privilege to pray and to enter into your presence with your people. And so, God, we ask that, you, that we would, you would enable us to embrace prayer. Not as if prayer is the goal, but that we would embrace you. That we wouldn't ever as Al just told us, fall in love with prayer so much as we fall in love with Jesus and recognize prayer is the connection point where we enter into the presence of Jesus. And so, God, we pray that uh, you would enable us through the events of today and this weekend to embrace a deeper connection with you, and we would find it through prayer. And so, and so we um, echo uh, Psalm 145.18, that says the Lord is near to all who cry out to him and to all who cry out to him sincerely. So, Father, that's our heart today, that we would cry out as individuals and as an assembled people for your presence and for more of you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Al, come and join us. Well, I want to appreciate you all so much publicly just to say thank you for praying for me and my family. It's been a long time that we've been in a relationship of prayer with you, and uh, I consider it one of my greatest blessings and resources that the Lord has allowed me to have that relationship with so many of you uh, and the church together. So when I pray, it's not hard to pray for you because you're so much on my heart in many ways. Um, you know, Tim Tebow, that great spiritual scholar. No, uh, no, no. Tim Tebow is a, a, a man of God. I'm going to tell you what. He walks with the Lord. And I like a quote he said to a bunch of young people. Uh, here's what he said. I like this. He said, you know, I've learned that I have a great fear in my life, one of the greatest fears that I have, and that is that I would spend my life becoming really, really, really good and successful in something that doesn't really matter. Now, I think he's seen some things too, you know, but that was a tremendous quote. I loved it. I said, wow, we spend our energy and time becoming really successful and good 
at something that doesn't ultimately really matter when it comes to the end of everything. Well, I thank the Lord for you all and thank the Lord for the privilege of being here with you today. Uh, <clears throat> I think I have arrived at where we're supposed to go this session. I want to tell you about a story that Leonard Ravenhill told me about a little widow in the Chicago area. Chicago area has some good stories. Uh, but uh, Years before that, there's a man named V.R. Edmund. You ever heard that name? Well, he was the president of Wheaton College uh, not, some years ago. But before that, many years before that, he was a student at Wheaton College. Let's just pray before I go into this. Father, I pray that you will take these words uh, that you have laid on our hearts together and ignite them and cause them to produce in us a real passion that uh, causes us to walk in what you have for us. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus uh, that we have an access to the throne room through him. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've placed within our hearts that wants to pray with, with and through us uh, and with groanings even that we can't put into words. Teach us how to bear the, the heart and burden of God in these days and, uh, and, and become a person who hears you, lays hold of your will, plants the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, as you say, and uh, together rejoice in your glory. So we just ask you to bind the enemy away, and may he have no part in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. V.R. Edmund, he was a student who absolutely was gifted in linguistics. He, everybody marveled and said, he will be a great scholar. In, uh, he was a younger man, and he, he will teach in our seminaries, and he'll, he'll really teach us things. Well, imagine their surprise when he and his brand new wife said, we are going to leave America and go down to South America to become missionaries. We want to translate the scriptures into a language that has not had the scriptures. And so they all rejoiced and they got ready and uh, he sold everything. And uh, the, I love this about ladies. The, his wife kept her wedding dress you know, and took that with her. Isn't that sweet? Uh, you know, and took that with them. And when they got down there, uh, he began the work of learning the language better and the tedious translation. It was a you know, labor of love and made tremendous progress. And as a couple of, I think a couple of years, I may have dates a little off here, but a couple of years passed and suddenly <clears throat> V.R. Edmund was stricken with a disease that no one there had ever recovered from. The, the people that lived there said, this is a tragedy. And V.R. Edmund began to lose weight, and he got down to where he was so thin, he looked like a skeleton with, uh, with uh, skin stretched over it. And Ravenhill told me about this and said, they'd, Al, they'd, they'd actually put him in a hut over by himself from this disease that, you know, he was by himself, and they had actually dug his grave because they knew his time was short. His wife had used uh, berry juice to dye her wedding dress black that she would wear when she buried him. They were ready. And V.R. Edmund's own testimony is that he was in this hut so aware that he was passing on and he, he knew he was dying. And at a certain point in the night, 
he said the Spirit of God came upon him and he was healed. He knew he was healed. Something had happened and he knew that he'd been healed. And he, he woke up uh, into a fully consciousness and he began to splash water onto his face and he bathed and he went over and spent until the morning he spent time alone with God just praising him and thanking him for he knew that he had been made whole. The next morning when he walked out and presented himself, you know, he was still thin, but he was well. Everybody was totally amazed. In fact, they called it V.R. Edmonds Resurrection Day. They called it that. And he went on and had a great ministry. And years later, as he got older, he came back to the U.S. I, I think I have this time frame right, but he became the president of Wheaton. And then he was, he was speaking at a missions conference up in that area. And he told his story of his resurrection day. Uh, I think this is in that book, They Found the Secret. Uh, I think his own testimony is in there by V.R. Edmund about the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. But um, after he got through that night, a little lady, you know the kind I'm talking about? She walks like this, you know, and real slow and kind of bent over a little bit. And she, she carried her Bible up here like this. And she had a little notebook with her that was tattered and uh, looked like it had been through, uh, left out on the freeway and cars had run over it. You know, it was just so tattered. And, and, uh, and, and so she walked up and she says, oh, good evening, Dr. Edmund. Uh, uh, that's a wonderful reminder. Uh, can you, could you tell me, do you know the date of your uh, resurrection? She had known him for a long time, apparently. And uh, he said, well, sure, I can tell you the date. And he, 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 he told her the date, and she got her book, and she was going, mm-hmm, uh, okay, yes, Dr. Edmund, could you tell me what time it would be and, uh, when she named her little town? On, on that date when, uh, when this happened to you, could you tell me? And he, he uh, said, his evening there, and he figured the, the difference, and he said, it would probably be back where you are about this t- time. It was early, 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 early in the morning. And, uh, and so um, he, she was looking down her little book, and she says, oh, there it is, Dr. Edmund. Ooh, I think you'll want to see this. And uh, she, he looked over her shoulder, and, and he saw that all these little pencil you know, requests and everything, and there's a one right here that says, you see here, Dr. Edmund, it says, the, the Lord woke me up from deep sleep and said to me, the, the devil is trying to kill V.R. Edmund. Prayed for him. Do you see that check there, Dr. Edmund? <laughs> like this. And, and he looked at it, he said, and, and she went, that means victory. Uh, you know, I said, lady, Can we cancel the conference and can I just talk to you a little bit? This was one of God's hidden ones, one of his secret people, one of his people that know him alone. I remember once in southern England in Cornwall, we were late to a meeting on a Sunday morning and uh, we went in and there was, they'd already started singing because we'd come by car and uh, down in the front, there were people singing, but there was a little, I noticed as I was waiting to go up, I was going to preach that morning and 
as a little lady, she had on kind of a purplish dress, you know. Uh, it, she was a very older lady, and uh, probably my age now, but, uh, but, but, but she was in her purple, and, and she had on those hose that have a line down the back, you know, that nobody, they used to wear, and nobody would even be buried in now, a woman wouldn't, you know, and, and little platform shoes, and she had on a little purple hat, and with a hairnet, kind of not down, but here, and I, I was fascinated by her, because she would raise her hands and go, oh, she was trying to sing, she couldn't sing, but she was trying to praise God, and it was wonderful, I noticed her on the front row, and I said, that's a fascinating woman, and so I preached, and afterwards, she came over to me afterwards, and she came up to me, and she says, Oh, Mr. Whittinghill, uh, thank you for coming here today. And she put her hand out, and I shook it. And I noticed a button right there. I think it was on the, this, the correct side, but it says, Keep me burning, Lord. <laughs> Keep me burning. She had, a, and she had a little twinkly eyes, and she was just so vibrant. And I, and I was just so fascinated by this woman. And then she walked off and, See you later. And she walked off, and someone said, Do you know who that was? And I said, No. He said, he, Little Miss So and so, the pastor said. And, and she lives over in a cottage just overlooking the sea. And people come in the morning and line up outside her house. Because she's a woman of prayer. She's an intercessor. And people wait in line to tell her what to pray for. And she prays for them. She's known as a woman of prayer. And I said, wow, I got to shake her hand. You know, just an awesome little woman. One of God's spiritual heroes. He has people that, uh, that he call his hidden ones, his spiritual heroes. And you'll never know them this side of eternity. But they're there and they're, they're wonderful. I remember doing a funeral for an Indian woman in Knoxville. Uh, I'd known her, her, her son and her daughter and her son-in-law. Uh, they were my friends. And she would come. Her name was Amma. They would call her. And I went to her. Her husband had been a great preacher in India, but she was a woman of prayer. She'd come over here and lives in their side room. And she, was, she would come out. And she was always so, hello, Al. You know, how are you doing today? <laughs> you know, and she was just beautiful, wonderful woman, just radiant. And um, they asked me to do her funeral. And I went that night before, and I went into her room. And on her, in her shelves were all these notebooks with names of missionaries, names of people. Her, da her daughter said she never wasted a moment. She was in there alone for years, 20 years maybe, and she would write these little hand scribbled. Nobody could read them but her notes. And she prayed for them. And when I stood up to do her funeral, I could sense the pleasure of God on this life that she had lived. Well, it's an amazing thing. I, w I wonder what would happen if I took an offering right now and, and just passed the, the, the bucket or whatever and said, everybody, all I want is your keys. Just put your keys in there. And everybody took out their keys and they put them in there and I got in my car and I left. What would that do to you? Well, it would completely shut you down. It would shut down your driving home. You have to walk. It shut down your house. It shut down maybe your work. I don't know what it shut down, but it shut down a lot of things if you lose your keys. And see, what we're going to talk about now are the keys that the Lord Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth, it says in the Greek, shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, you're getting in on what God has said he's done. And you are speaking in agreement saying it's bound. God has bound this. It's been settled in heaven. And I want to settle it on earth in the name of Jesus. And whatsoever you loose on earth, shall have been loosed in heaven. 
In other words, I've given the Holy Spirit to this group, and they need to know this because it's my will. It's come to them, and they're not experiencing this. You can lose it among your city. You can lose the things, the blessing of God. And so I wonder what would happen if today the Lord gave us our keys back. Martin Luther used to have an expression that was called the ministry of the keys, where he would... Uh, he, he would bind and loose. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of warfare. You heard the story of him throwing the ink at the, uh, one day he was praying and the devil appeared to him. I don't know if that's so, but there's a smudge in a place in Germany. See, that's where Martin Luther threw his ink. That's what we do with stuff, you know. But we make it into a big deal. But, but he knew spiritual warfare. And we need to know spiritual warfare. We need to know what, it, what the real treasures. He says, I will give to you the treasuries of the secret place. You may never become like Rex Andrews, who was in Chicago. Ravenhill told me about this guy, too. He was a man who'd been a missionary for 40 years, and he, he had health problems. So he came back into a little apartment, lived by himself in Chicago area. And he wouldn't come out very much, but uh, he, he would give himself to prayer. He prayed day and night, all night, many nights, and Rex, uh, Rex finally died. And when they carried him out of his house on a stretcher, it was the first time he'd been out of his house in 12 years. 12 years. And uh, Ravenhill said, well, he was a man of prayer. They found all these books of prayer, journals, and what he had done. Rex Andrews, a, man, a hidden one, little woman with V.R. Edmund. All these, they're all over Dalton, probably. You know, maybe you're one, but I know I'm not like I want to be one. I want to be one of these people. But like, again, it takes a choice. Uh, real prayer is personal. It's a family time. It's when you come alone with your father, like Jesus came alone with his father. And we have access to come right in where angels fear to dwell. They come in and uh, they fall down and we come right in and kind of strut in sometimes and just say all these things. I want to tell you a story and then I want to talk to you about what uh, I would consider uh, one of the, I think, one of the greatest truths in Scripture in terms of just what God wants from you and me. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 6, I want to take you there and then we're going to just look at this. I think this is, this is simpler than the things I was going to say about the church praying together. Because if you get this right, you'll take care of the other. The other will come. The other will come as you learn to pray together. Uh, I'm going to take you back for a second. Let me just read um, Matthew chapter 6. And um, there's, let me say this first. Chapter 5 of Matthew starts the Sermon on the Mount. And it deals with the be attitudes, not the do attitudes, but the be attitudes, who you're supposed to be. This is what will be in you as you walk with the Lord and serve him, poor in spirit, mourning, uh, meek. These things will begin to be character qualities that you will be. And it talks about this being seen, uh, your, your light, you'll, you'll shine before men. So chapter 5 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount deals with your public life where people begin to see you for who you are in the Lord, and you begin to grow. Chapter 7, skipping chapter uh, 6, is uh, about how we act with one another and how we receive truth. Judge not that you be not judged, and beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, and you can tell them by their fruits and, and uh, the realized public. So both 5 and 
7 deal with public testimony and life that happens. But chapter 6 is different. It's like in the middle. It's like a spinal cord in this truth. In chapter 6, you'll see the word in secret over and over again in this. And he talks about secret disciplines, really, uh, about seeking first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness and all these things that you're working for the outside will come. Don't worry about your own life. Uh, worship him. But in chapter 6, this, the first part of it, the middle part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, take heed that you do not your giving before men to be seen of them. And then he says in chapter uh, 6, verse 5, when you pray, don't pray like hypocrites pray. They love to pray standing in synagogues and in the corners of the streets. And then he also says, if you go down in verse 16, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces so they can appear to men to fast. So in each of these three things that he says to them, they're to be done in secret. What does that mean? For the eye of God alone. Of course people are going to know when you fast sometimes as a church or when you do these things giving publicly, we take a public offering. But this is talking about a different kind of of giving and fasting and praying. This is talking about what we do in our hearts as he changes us for the eye of God alone. For God alone, and He is the only one that would know it. Now, I would just say that there's three disciplines. The middle discipline talks about prayer. It's the middle of the middle, the spinal cord. It's like the, the centrifuge from which everything else comes in this situation. And let me just show you these secret inner disciplines that we learn to choose when you give, when you fast, when you pray, when you fast, they correspond to how God exercises us on the inside to give us moral and physical spiritual strength it's like a muscle inside that's why hebrews says he says listen uh, those that are have strong meat have exercised their spiritual faculties by right use what does that mean it means that you've you've distilled your life and you're living for the heart and mind and eye of god alone in this matter so you see see in the in the book of john First uh, John, it talks about uh, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, that's passion to do things. This is where we call temptation and all the you know, different things we struggle with. The, the lust of the flesh, say, do this, passion to do it. Then there's the lust of the eye. That is, that's the desire for possessions and having things. And then the pride of life is the desire to be. So it's to do, to have, and to be. These are the great pressures that the world puts on us. It's like you passion and possession and position. Those three things, those three pressures, the pressure of the world to, to walk in the uh, gratification of the flesh and the greed of the possessions and then the, uh, the glorification of our own life and thinking we're something when we're nothing. And so how do you answer those things? Well, this, this right here in Matthew chapter 6, he says, listen, when you give, see, what that does is it, it answers that part of us that wants to have more. So you're learning to, the Holy Spirit says to you, I want you to go over, you're in the mall. He says, I want you to go over there. I was in the mall once in Fort Worth and uh, 
when I was in seminary. I didn't have any money at all. I couldn't even hardly rub two dimes together. But I had a little. That my father would send me a little bit every now and then. And over there across the way, there was a little Spanish, a little Mexican woman. And she was looking through the window of a child's shoe store at shoes longingly. And her kids were there. And I'm over there. And, and the Lord whispers to my heart, go buy her children some shoes. Now, I said, that's for me? Lord, you know I don't have any money. I can barely pay anything. And he says, go buy me some shoes. So I, th- this is in secret. And I don't tell many people, I'm telling you today, but, but uh, the Lord's teaching me something about secret giving. And so I walk over to this woman and I say, ma'am, uh, I see your lovely children here and I know you don't know me, but, uh, but I love the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know the Lord Jesus loves you and your children. And I believe that he told me this. I, I, I think I'm trying to listen. I think he says to me, go over there and, and let that woman give her a gift of shoes for her kids. So she started crying. We went inside. She bought, she bought that. I, I bought that. And I left. Didn't know her name. Then I said, Jesus wants you to enjoy those and know he loves you and you need to seek him with all your heart because he wants you as his child. And I gave her a track and I left. And, and something inside of me was strengthened to release, to release, to release that muscle. It's the, instead of possession, it's giving. So that's how, how when, when you... When you lust of the flesh, that came the first thing by eating. It came, it came man ate. He, he ate the forbidden fruit. And it's the desire to do something. And so it's the basic instinct of eating, the basic most thing. And God says, I want you to learn to, to, 